Thanks, Suzanne, for leading us in our time of prayer this morning. I love all our worship leaders, but um, especially when Helen leads worship, it's always energetic, isn't it? There's always something in there. And I'm very conscious that I sit there and I don't join in. And it's not because I don't like it. It's, I love it when there's, there's actions and there's all the, sort of the active sort of stuff and it, it gets people going. I really, I, I like it. Um, but I don't join in because ever since I was that high, I have been hopeless at doing two things at once. And reading the words on the screen as well as doing that, that's just beyond me. So it's not, it's not that I don't like it. I, I want to encourage you in that. I, I love it. And I, I know I can see out the corners of my eye other people are joining in and everything. It's brilliant. But um, even if we go to a party, I'm forbidden from... We go on the premise that I am under no circumstances to come within 10 yards of the, 10 yards of the dance floor um, because cause people think I'm having a fit or something and, and um, Joe just, Joe just can't, can't stand the sight of it. So, um, yeah, so that's why... Um, but I do love active worship, and I love it when, when we encourage, um, when we have a, a church full of children and, and young people and, and the rest of us as well, and, and there's an encouragement to engage and to take part and to express ourselves in our desire to worship our God. It's a good thing to do. So we're at that time of year, schools have gone back, and September is truly upon us. We've suddenly this week had the, um, the annual event where the nice summer temperature falls off a cliff, and you open your window, having shut it one night, shutting out the, the, the strong sunshine, you open it the next morning, and there's penguins in the garden, and it's freezing cold. We've got to that time, haven't we? And it's also the time when, traditionally, we celebrate harvest. Now, I say traditionally because for quite some time now, harvest has been something which, for most of us, it's, it's a festival we celebrate in church, and, and I think schools still mark it, but actually, it's not what it once was. It was once a time where we celebrated the gathering of the harvest, because if, we, if the harvest had failed for any reason, then it would have serious implications for our survival. And so... Harvest, um, the, the celebration of harvest at one, one time for, for generations must have been a pretty major event in the calendar. And for us in church, it should still be a, a major event in the calendar, but for most people in the world out there, harvest doesn't really feature on their radar. At any time of the year, you can walk into a supermarket and buy um, fruits and vegetables and other things which simply do not grow in this country at, this, at that time of year because we import it from all over the place. And, and so we've sort of lost the appreciation of harvest. But of course, from a Christian perspective, harvest has two, um, there's two main emphases. One is the the literal harvest, giving thanks to God, the provider of the, the sunshine and the rain and the crops and, and, and the, for the food that we have and a reminder that everything we have that is good is from God. To count our blessings each day, each mealtime, to give thanks for what he has given us. But there's also the other element. Harvest has, has a very spiritual implication in Scripture. When we talk about gathering the harvest, a lot of the time in Scripture we are talking about salvation. I read a book um, over the summer. It was um, all about different farming techniques used in the Lake District. 
Um, don't ask why. Um, but I learned an awful lot because I, I, did, I knew very little about, about farming. And I thought I'd start with this, this picture today of a tractor pulling a plough because in this book, there was a, the author was reminiscing about his grandfather who'd also been a farmer, and his grandfather didn't trust tractors. He was old school. He, he, he used horse and plough. And the reason for that, he said, as soon as you get in the tractor, you lose contact with the earth. And the author remembered his grandfather being able to take a handful of earth and tell by the, the structure of the soil and the temperature and the, the moisture content and that sort of thing, tell what state the soil was in, whether it needed to be left for a, a year or two to recover or whether it was nutritious and rich. And there was one point that struck me. The author said, um, uh, since the mass use of fertilizers and pesticides and that sort of thing, which for a brief period meant that the amount of crop that was produced was rapidly accelerated and there was a real, um, real um, increase in productivity. And people thought, wow, this is like the farming revolution. He said, actually, now that's, that's, that happened for a, a couple of generations and there's now an understanding that actually it damages the soil. And he said he got to the point where this scene was very, very unusual in places like the Lake District and other farming communities, whereas once you would see a, plow, a, 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 a cloud of birds following a plough in a field. He said it got to the point where you would see a plough being pulled across a field and there were no birds. And the reason for that is because the chemicals that had been put into the soil had broken down the, the, the micro-ecosystems in the soil and insects that once were there were no longer there and therefore birds had nothing to come and eat, there was no point, and so birds went elsewhere. And it was really interesting just reading the effects that, that it had. Now, this is, not, um, this is not a Sunday morning where I speak about damage to the environment and that sort of thing, but it was interesting, it got me thinking. Because in Scripture, the plough plays quite a significant role. We often read about, about the plough as a metaphor for life, a metaphor for keeping on the straight and narrow, for ploughing our furrow, for sharing our burden, just keeping going. And yet so many people try and find the easy way through life, want to, to share the, the, the fertilisers and the pesticides and, and just to, to, to suddenly have that massive glut of success without realising the long-term eternal effects that it can have if we don't respect the earth that we've been given. It's important that we have an awareness, at harvest especially, but at all times of year as well, of our responsibility to make sure that we follow the instructions of our Creator God. Not just in a literal sense when it comes to looking after our environment, but also in a spiritual sense as well when it comes to looking after our own self spiritually and that of others that we meet. I wasn't brought up in a farming community, but in the fields opposite the house where I lived for my childhood, there was a local farmer who would regularly, every year, there'd be um, a crop. It was normally, I think, wheat or corn or something like that. I've got really fond memories of when I was primary age, going out with my older brother into the fields and 
they were gather, they'd gathered in the harvest, and it was at a time when they were getting the hay bales in. And I remember just about being able to grab the string and pick up one of these bales, and they were quite heavy. I don't know how heavy they actually are, but to a primary age child, it was a, that was quite a feat. I was quite chuffed. And I saw this picture earlier in the week, and it reminded me of, of, of standing on the ground. And I remember a health and safety lesson that the farmer gave me. He said, when you pick it up, he said, he said hold it by the strings and lift it. And he said, don't hold your face near it. Don't use your head to push it up or anything. And he said, don't have your hands anywhere near. And the reason for that is quite simple. The bloke on the top of the trailer had a pitchfork. And so you'd hold it like that with your head away, and this bloke would just ram a pitchfork in, pitch it up, and stick it onto the tractor. Now, thankfully, no one ever got decapitated, but I look back now and I think, there's no way I'd allow my son to do that. No way at all. Farming is a dangerous business. It is hard work. It takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of investment. It takes a lot of faith. And so maybe if they're the qualities that we find in, in the farming community, maybe it's no surprise that farmers were often used by God in the Bible to carry out certain roles. This morning... We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 19. And by the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 19, we've, we've heard a lot about Elijah, God's prophet. And Elijah, God's prophet, the man chosen by God to, um, to be the, the intermediary between God and Israel, gone through a tough time. In fact, he'd gone through a, a torrid time. And God had been faithful, and God had looked after him. But Elijah had got to the point where he'd, he'd hidden himself away. He'd, 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 he was scared of his enemies. He saw, um, he saw allies being destroyed all around him, and he was, he was shaken. And so God meets him in a cave. And there's this wonderful moment, which we'll look at in another sermon, where God meets in a very, very powerful way with Elijah. But one of the things that God does is tells Elijah... I have handpicked these people to help you and to support you. You need to go and you need to contact them and you need to form alliances with them. And one of the people that God has identified is a man called Elisha. Now we first hear of Elisha when God has, has said, he said to Elijah, go back the way you came, go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. So this is, God is saying to Elijah, this is the man who's going to succeed you. This is the one that I have chosen to be the next prophet. So this is, this is a big deal. Now, we often think of prophets as very holy godly people. People who have a wisdom, have a kind of hotline to God. People always seem to just be able to speak into situations. First thing we learn about Elisha, God says, so this is talking about the enemies that Elijah was scared of. God says, Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. 
and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. So in other words, the first thing we learn about Elisha is that he's a warrior. He's not, he's not going to be afraid of wielding the sword. When enemies of God come into his path, they're going to meet one fate. That's the first thing we learn about Elisha. But then straight away in verse 19, we, learn, we see the call of Elisha. We see this, this moment. I'm just going to read this, this passage. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. So Elisha is not afraid of getting his hands dirty. Elijah goes and finds him, and he's, he's got 12 yoke of oxen. So that's, that's 24 oxen. That's a significant amount of livestock. To have that much livestock, you need to have the infrastructure. You need to have the, 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 the barns. You need to have the, the land to keep them. You need to have the, the money to feed them. So straight away, we know that Elisha, he, he's a man of wealth. He comes from a family who, who own land. They would have employed staff, farmers, farmhands to work the land, to work the livestock. So straight away we know that Elisha is the next in line to be prophet of Israel. We also know that he's handy with a sword. He doesn't perhaps fit the mould that we might have of, of a prophet being someone who is very holy and, and doesn't really get their hands dirty but speaks wisdom from a distance. No, 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 that's not Elisha. He, 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 is, he is there ready to do the dirty work. In fact, he's already doing it because the, the hard, demanding lifestyle of farming he's no stranger to. Twelve yoke of oxen are ploughing his land and he himself is driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. No words are exchanged as far as we know. It's simply this act. This was a significant act of one prophet going and putting his cloak around the shoulders of somebody else. That was a way of saying, you are God's successor. You are being clothed in, in, in the, with the blessing that I have received. You are now receiving that. A significant moment. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Straight away, Elisha reacts. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I'll come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. So the, 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 the mantle is wrapped around Elisha's shoulders, this very clear visual demonstration of the handing on of the responsibility, the calling of the next prophet. Elisha straight away recognises what's going on, takes a moment to process it, to take it all in, runs after Elijah and says, let me go back and, and, and kiss goodbye to my mother and father. In other words, let, let, me, let me draw a line here, let me say a proper farewell. Elijah just says, I haven't done anything, what, what have I done to you? In other words, Elijah's saying, this is God's calling on your life. This is, this is not me, you don't have to justify it to me, it's not up to me to give permission for you to say goodbye. This is now you and God. I've done nothing in this. It's not me that's calling you. This is God's calling on your life. 
And so Elisha goes back, but he doesn't just go back to, to kiss farewell to his, his mother and father. You see, Elisha knows in that moment he has been called by God. This is, this is life-changing. But it's only life-changing if he's prepared to change his life. He goes back. He bids farewell to his mother and father. But he does a lot more than that. He took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. So those livestock that he'd been ploughing with, they can never plough again. That furrow that he was ploughing that would have come to an abrupt end when he felt the, the, the cloak being draped around his shoulders, that, that's the end of that furrow. The rest of that land remains unbroken. Those two oxen, they're slaughtered. He burned the ploughing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. So the plough that he was using, this, this, this equipment that he was using, suddenly that gets smashed to pieces, it gets, put onto, it gets built up into a fire, it gets lit. That fire is used to cook the meat. They have a feast, they have a meal. There is no way, even if he suddenly said, actually, do you know what, Elijah, look, take this back, it's really not me, I, wanna, I really enjoy farming, I'm going to stay here, God's going to have to find someone else. He couldn't do that. He's, he's, he's ended, this is an absolute, total, final end to his previous life. The call has come to follow God and he has been obedient to the point of destroying any chance he ever had of going back to his old existence. This is such a moment. And he celebrates it. There is a feast. There is a feast. The final goodbye is, is a moment of, of celebration. The meat is served to the people. They eat together. And then once that has done, as the ashes are smouldering, as the, the bones are being picked over, as the bellies are full and people are drifting off into the night, then, at that moment, he sets out to follow Elijah and become his servant. So in the call of Elisha, we see this, this wonderful obedience, this wonderful obedience to, to the call of God on someone's life. And it's, it's such, a, such a, a statement. He abandoned the plough that was bringing him earthly profit, the plough that was the family way of life, the plough that meant he could employ farmhands, the plough that, that earned him the right to have the land that he had and to enjoy the lifestyle and all of these things, he abandons all that to become Elijah's servant. In other words, he's, he's, a, he's a successful farmer. In today's world, he would, have, he would have had a few quid and he turns his back on all that to become the servant of a prophet. Now, a prophet was a servant of God. So in other words, here Elisha is becoming a servant's servant. He's humbling himself. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the, from the top of the tree, in earthly terms, I'm going to the bottom of the tree. But in spiritual terms, I'm being obedient to God. What a privilege. 
You see, when we're called to follow God, it's not always an easy thing to do. Jesus talked about the cost of following him in Luke 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. What a great statement. We'd all love to say that, wouldn't we? Lord, I will be obedient to you. I will give you, I will follow you wherever you call me to go. I'll lay it all down. I'll be Elisha. Jesus said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. No place to call home. No big house. No job title to identify yourself by. No family money to call upon if things all go wrong. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now there was this Jewish tradition of second burial. It sounds a bit strange in this day and age. They would bury their dead, their loved ones, for a year. It's normally in a tomb of some sort. And then after a year, they would then be buried in the ground. And so when Jesus is saying this, the, the, Jesus said to this man, follow me, follow me. And we see, we see other examples of Jesus saying to people, follow me, and they drop their nets or they leave the tax booth and they follow him straight away. They're obedient to the call to follow me. But here, this man says, let me, let me go and, and bury my, my father. Now, potentially, he was saying, look, give me a year. I need to put my things in order. In this, in, in, in this day and age, we might think, well, the poor guy's just, just lost his father. He wants to, wants to go to the funeral. Surely that's reasonable. Come on, Jesus, that's, that's, that's not an unreasonable request. But actually, when we look at the, 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 the context of the day, this man was saying, give me, give me a year. I'll follow you, but let me do it on my terms. Let me, let me do what I want to do first, and then once, once I've done all that, then I'll follow you. When God makes a call, puts a calling on our life, when, when he suddenly instructs us to do something, how do we respond? Do we say... Everything I was doing before, that's, that's gone. We might not burn the plough and slaughter the oxen, but that's, that's me done. I'm not interested anymore. Lord, I am yours. Or do we say, I know he's calling me to do this, but I've got a mortgage to pay and, and I've, got, I've, got, I've got kids or I've got parents that depend on me or, or I've still got this degree to finish or I've, 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 still, I've got a career path that I'm really passionate about. It might be any number of things. Let me, let me do this. Let me do this and then I'll, then I'll follow you. Jesus wants us to be obedient to him. Still another man said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. There's that plough again. And of course, if you're, if you're ploughing, the, the, I've, never, I've never done it, but I've, I've, I know that ploughing is actually quite an art. I don't know if any of you read, uh, saw the um, doc documentary series, uh, not documentary, the um, uh, series called Clarkson's Farm. Jeremy Clarkson tried to run a farm and um, 
this, I'll leave it to you whether you want to watch it or not. But you do get an appreciation of um, how difficult things like ploughing a field is. We drive past ploughed fields all the time and they look all straight lines and pretty and everything. That is a real art. And it's only when you watch something, someone who's, who's a complete novice try and achieve it that you realise how hard it is. Um, and so when Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God, you think, well, actually, anyone who, who isn't focusing 100% on driving the tractor and towing the plough or, or leading the horses and keeping it straight, if, you're not, if, you're not, if your mind's elsewhere or if you're looking back, then you're going to do a rubbish job. You're not going to plough the entire field properly. The crops are not going to be planted in the right way. It's not going to be as economical as it could be. The job is not going to be done well. That's true of farming. It's true of ploughing, but it's also true spiritually. When God says, follow me, if we say, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll follow you. I just, uh, just want to see what happens with the, with, with the football match I was watching. Then it's going to, go, it's going to end badly. You're going to go off-piste. You're, you're going to lose your bearings very quickly. And suddenly, the thing that's taking our attention is not going to be God. It's going to be distractions all around us. You see, for a lot of people... One of the hardest things about being obedient to this call is not necessarily the distraction of the career path or the family or the different obligations that we have in life. It's often a distraction of the past. I'm not worthy. You don't, you don't want me, Lord. You've got eight billion people in this world and I'm, you can do better than me. I know who I am, I know what I've done, I know what I've said and thought and been. And, and Lord, you don't want me. And we can find ourselves wanting to follow at a distance, to sort of slink along in the shadows thinking, I, I really, I believe, I, I, I really, I, I love the Lord my God, but, but I just cannot love myself. And so I don't want to be up front pushing the plough or, or, or leading it. I, no, 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 no. I want, to be, I want to be at the back and I just want to be quietly following at a distance where no one notices me because I feel so unworthy. Jesus doesn't look at us like that. You see, Jesus left behind him a tomb with no body, an empty tomb, a tomb that had nothing but some neatly folded grave clothes in the corner. And an empty tomb is, has been carved out to be filled with things which, which are dead now. Things which have been left behind. And Jesus gives us this option of taking our past taking all the things that we don't like about ourselves, all the things that distract us, all those nagging voices that convince us that we're, we're not worthy of his love and his grace and his presence. And Jesus says, there's an empty tomb for all that. Chuck it in there. Chuck it in there and then come and follow me. Say goodbye to it. 
burn it, slaughter it, destroy it, make it impossible for you to go back to. Know that that is no longer you, that does not define you, that is gone, that is in the tomb, and come and follow me. And don't follow me at a distance, sheltering and and shyly wandering along, feeling unworthy. Instead, call yourself a child of God, a brother of Christ, or a sister of Christ, and and push that plough. And do that work. And it won't be easy. I never said it would be easy. But I'm right there with you as you do it. We don't worship a God who defines us by our past. We don't worship a God who offers salvation on condition that we do certain things in the future. We worship a God who loves us and who calls us right here, right now, wherever we happen to be in life. You see, right back towards the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 3, God's appeared to Moses. Now Moses, at birth he was illegitimate, Children, Hebrew children were being slaughtered. He should have been slaughtered. But instead he was, he was put into a basket, his mother wanted to protect him and he was sent down the Nile and he was found by an Egyptian princess who, who took him, who looked after him as her own. He lived a privileged childhood until eventually he was walking along around one day he saw a, uh, an Israelite slave being badly treated by an Egyptian slave master. Moses takes a rock and murders the slave master. Buries the body in the sand and he knows he's a murderer. So he flees. He's gone from top of the tree to, to the bottom and he finds himself out in the wilderness looking after a small herd of sheep, flock of sheep. And then he sees this bush on fire. And yet it's not burning. It's a really odd phenomenon. And he watches it and nothing, nothing seems to be being destroyed. But it's on fire. It's burning. And he walks closer and he hears this voice saying, take off your, your sandals for your holy ground. And he realizes it's God talking to him. And God has this massive plan lined up. And Moses feels unworthy because Moses knows who Moses is. And he knows what Moses has done. And so Moses looks at Moses and said, there's no way you want me, Lord. There's no way I'm good enough for this. God says, I will be with you. Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. God says, This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. I am. Now there's been loads of conjecture and debate and theology written about the significance of of I am. But but in one way it's a very simple, there's a very simple meaning behind it. You see it speaks to us. I am. This is the name that we call God from generation to generation because God doesn't, it's not I was, it's not when you were, when you were a really nasty piece of work 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years ago, I was. And so I know you. It's not that. It's not a God who, who judges us by our past. 
And it's not a God, I will be. That's not the name. I will be your God if, if you stop doing this, if you start doing this, if, if, if. It's not conditional. I am, right now, wherever you are in life, I am the Lord your God. I am there with you. I am the way and the truth and the life. So this morning, I don't necessarily expect you to say it out loud, but I wonder what it looks like. I wonder how you complete this sentence. I wonder how you're feeling this morning. I am... I am pretty low. I am mourning. I am terrified of what the results might say. I am struggling with the treatment. I am fighting to keep this relationship alive. I am broken by my redundancy. I am excited about the future. It's going to be different things for different people. I am. You know what God says? However you finish that statement, God says, I am who I am. That's never changed. That's exactly what he says to Moses. That's exactly what what he has said time and again throughout, throughout Scripture, throughout history. And right here, right now, I am who I am. I am the Lord your God. Who never abandons us. Who never gives up on us. Who never leaves us or forsakes us. Instead, who loves us. Who cares for us. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so we go back to the plough. Now, I know that ploughing is not necessarily part of harvest, strictly speaking, but it's part of the whole process. I know it takes place earlier in the year to prepare the ground, but, but ploughing, when you watch a tractor dragging a plough through the earth, it's hard work. It's heavy work. Ploughing with, with oxen, that must have been incredibly hard work. Jesus offers us a choice. We can either keep ploughing on through life, trying to find ways to to make it easier, trying to find short-term fixes and instant gratification, or we can plough the field that he has set before us, do the work that he has called us to. It's sometimes difficult. It's sometimes sacrificial. It sometimes hurts. But in all of this, Jesus promises He invites us 
to share our burden, to be yoked to him. Two together is, is better than one, especially when one of those two is Jesus. That's what he wants us to do. That's the call of the gospel. And at this harvest time, as, as, we, as we take for granted so much of the stuff that ends up on our plate, so much of the stuff on the supermarket shelves, we're, we're talking about the cost of living crisis at the moment, but no matter how bad the cost of living crisis gets, we're still going to have so much more than the vast, vast majority of people in this world. Let's not forget that. Let's not take for granted the blessings that our God pours out upon us every day. And let's ask, how can I respond? Well, we can respond by calling him into our life, by following the example that he sets, by loving our neighbours, by providing for those who don't have what we have, with our kindness, with our generosity. In short, by following the example of Jesus, by applying his teaching, by not getting distracted, and by making sure that our focus stays on our God for all the days of our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you as we begin to think about harvest and we have that reminder of all of the things that you give us on a daily basis, every plate full of food, every breath that we breathe, every blink of the eye and, and beat of the heart. Father, we thank you that you are in control of every detail of our lives. Father, forgive us for the times when we try to go it alone and plough a furrow that you haven't set before us or when we abandon the plough altogether and, and search for, a, for an easier life. Father, help us to, to recognise the work that you call us to do. Whether it's a, a huge life-changing event like we saw in, in Elisha or whether it's the small moments in our daily lives opportunities to, to share our faith with people, to talk about our church or to talk about our God. Father, in those moments, we pray you'll give us the strength, the strength to, to take on that yoke, to plough that furrow. Even when the going is tough and we meet with rejection or perhaps ridicule or questions that we would rather not have to answer father give us the strength to do that we pray help us to to do our bit in the work of the harvest the harvest of the the spiritual souls of people father we want to build your kingdom we want to do your work we want to be obedient to you Lord, we pray that you will make clear to each and every one of us the work you're calling us to do. And you'll give us the spirit of obedience to take it up, to take up that challenge and to do your work. Lord God, bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. I'm going to invite the worship band to come up and we'll close the service with a time of worship.